Greetings, Greetings and welcome to Synesthesia Corner, where Discord and Rhyme explores the secrets, secrets. and colors, orange, fuchsia, golden rhyme, earth sienna, of the mind, music of the mind. Oh no, it's Funk John. Funk John. I care not for your inner visions. Today is for visions of Stevie. Gonna keep on trying, cause this is Discord and Rhyme. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and generally where podcasts are found. And you can find our complete archive of back episodes on our website, discordpod.com. Roll call. Ben Marlin. John McFerrin. Rich Benell, And Phil Maddox. We have a new Patreon donor this week, Trung. Longtime fan of Discord and Rhyme from even before we were a podcast. He knew what we would become. If other listeners like what you hear and want to support us with a monthly donation, you can visit patreon.com forward slash discord pod. And thanks to those of you who have already. Finally, if you have any thoughts about the show or just want to say hello, we're on both Twitter and Instagram at discord pod. And you can email us at discordpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, John. What album do you have for us, John, and why did you pick it? Uh, this week, we will be discussing Inner Visions, the 1973 album from Stevie Wonder. Now, why did I want to do this? Well, in episode 19, Ben led a discussion on Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life, which I had the good fortune to be a part of. In my closing remarks for that episode, I stated that while I consider songs the greatest Stevie Wonder album... I also consider Inner Visions his best album, and I feel that any comprehensive examination of Stevie's impact on the world of pop music needs to cover both of these albums. My personal interest in this album, which has made me want to cover this since we started this podcast, goes beyond considering it the best Stevie album on a pound-for-pound, song-for-song, second-for-second basis. For the purpose of this episode, I'm interested in the album from three primary angles. First as an expansion and extension of the rock-solid foundation that he had established for himself, even if it's also somewhat out of character for him. Second, as a partial correction of the one significant misstep that he had made in his growth as an artist over the previous five years. And third, as a potential career-ending capstone, which this album very nearly became. Inner Visions doesn't exactly need me or this episode to make a case for how amazing it is, But my hope with this episode is that if any of our listeners have been on the fence about Stevie Wonder, as somebody whose music is worth seeking out beyond individual radio hits, they will be persuaded at least to give this one a listen post-haste. So John, how did you get into Stevie Wonder? I gave my personal history of getting into Stevie in the songs episode, so I won't go too deeply into it here. But the short version is this. 
I purchased a copy of Inner Visions from a nearby Best Buy when I was in college in 2000, around the time that I became aware that people whose tastes I trusted liked Stevie Wonder enough that it was pretty stupid that I didn't own any Stevie Wonder albums yet. From there, I bought the remaining albums generally considered to constitute his prime period. These are Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Fulfilling This's First Finale, and Songs in the Key of Life. And then I stopped for about 15 years until I got around to diving into his full catalog for a page for my website that I completed in 2018. Perhaps it's partially because I bought this one first, but I've always liked this one the most. Partially because it shows a degree of dexterity in addressing the social issues that Stevie couldn't always muster on other albums, but also because it's his most balanced album in terms of emotion and mood. So Rich, what's your history with Stevie Wonder? Well, I'm glad to be on the episode this time. I got crowded out of Songs in the Key of Life, and also I wasn't a fan of the host of that episode. (laughs) Maybe you should have put a 20 in my palm and you could have gotten in. Well, so as for me and Stevie Wonder, my dad loves Stevie Wonder, but my mom hates him for whatever reason. I've never really been able to figure it out. Uh, So while there were copies of Talking Book and Intervisions in the CD collection at home, uh, they never got played in the car, and I had to spelunk them myself from my dad's CD collection. So I played this one first and I loved it immediately. And I'm glad that we returned to Stevie Wonder for a second round because I adore Songs in the Key of Life, but that album is a gigantic party, which is not a problem. But to me, like the songs on Intervisions feel more like their own little worlds to get lost in, which is the kind of album I tend to like. Um, so I'm not nearly the Stevie scholar that my co-hosts are. I've heard maybe about like a third, maybe 40% of his albums, and he has a lot of albums. But this One in particular, Intervisions is still one of my favorites of all time. Nice. Phil, what about you? Well, I was on the Songs in the Key of Life episode, and a lot of my history is there, so I'll be brief. I spent a lot of my life being pretty raucous, and I kind of didn't give guys like Stevie Wonder a chance because I wasn't really interested in, quote, R&B. But then I heard, I believe, When I Fall in Love, It Will Be Forever on the High Fidelity soundtrack and thought it was one of the best songs I'd ever heard. So... I bought Talking Book because that's the album that song's on. I liked it a lot. And then I read a lot of online reviews from guys like George Starrison, who was a big Stevie Wonder fan and eventually ended up picking up all his classic era albums and liked him a lot. And more details, just go back to the Songs in the Key of Life episode. Yeah, I talked a lot on the Songs in the Key of Life episode about my discovery of Stevie Wonder. Yes, I discovered him. He wanted to go into (laughs) architecture before I put a harmonica in his hand. Oh, like Weird Al. (laughs) But in short, I've been listening to Stevie on Oldies Radio my whole life, all 22 years of it. Uh, I discovered Intervisions back in college, uh, almost certainly through Wilson and Allroy's record reviews. That's actually how I learned about it too, Ben. Uh, I remember, in fact, that they both gave it five stars, so I knew that it had to be good. Yeah, they thought it was the greatest album ever, so you better believe I listened to it a lot. I'm amazed now at how well I know the album and how easily I can just listen to it in my head. I didn't have to do much listening uh, for this episode just because I know it. Uh, Surprise, surprise, it sounds great in my head, too. And the Ben (laughs) listening there has muscles and no gray hairs. Suffice to say, Intervisions blew me away back in college, and it still blows me away today. So I'm glad John picked it. I'm excited to talk about it. So we went into the history of Stevie Wonder on our Songs in the Key of Life episode. Go listen to it. But John, can you give us some history uh, specifically about Inner Visions? Some gonna get you. Some gonna grab you. 
Some gon' jump out the bushes and grab yeah. Hold out on You run fast Some gon' grab you Some gon' jump out the bushes and grab Some gon' grab you Oh, if you need to stay in gravity ah. Yeah, yeah Can you keep on running? Keep on running from my As Ben mentioned, the history of Stevie Wonder has been well covered by Discord and Rhyme. Oh boy, it has. <laughs> Both of the songs in the Key of Life episode and in the episodes in our This Is Comp side series, in which we've been making our way through the complete Motown number no. ones box set. For our purposes, Stevie Wonder's career prior to 1970 can be summarized as follows. Born in 1950, Stevie made his debut as Little Stevie Wonder in 1962. And over the next two years, Motown showed they had little idea how to properly handle him. He produced one giant selling single, an excerpt from a live performance of Fingertips, where the young Stevie Wonder showed he already had charisma to spare. But the rest of his time as little Stevie Wonder was marked by material that's largely unlistenable today. An album of toothless Ray Charles covers, an album of schlocky orchestrated jazz ballad standards, and an especially inexplicable album of surf music. Ah, those early Motown LPs. <laughs> Puberty then posed a threat to his career. But when he returned two years later with the 1966 album Uptight, it was clear that he had become a grown-ass man with a spectacular <laughs> voice. Over the next four years, Stevie became a spectacular singles artist. And while his albums remained spotty, this was a flaw of Motown generally, more than of Stevie in particular. Fast forward to 1970. After the release of two good but forgettable live albums, Stevie Wonder Live and Live at the Talk of the Town, August of that year saw the release of Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, named for the single Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. Like a fool I went and stayed too long I'm wondering if your love's still strong Ooh, baby Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours By this point, Stevie's role in the creation of his albums had extended beyond his initial role as a mere mouthpiece. Of the 12 songs on the album, he wrote or co-wrote seven of them. And for the first time, he was given a producer's credit, as he produced two of them and co-produced three of them. Given his prominence as both a songwriter and producer in his prime period, this was a major breakthrough. Now, if you are familiar with Stevie's career arc in broad strokes, you may now be thinking that you more or less know what happened next. Stevie became an adult. He was given the autonomy to write and produce the kind of music he really wanted to make. And he became one of the most successful popular musicians of the 20th century. All of this is true, but there's an episode in this arc that complicates matters somewhat and is relatively obscure unless you're somewhat of a serious Stevie Wonder scholar. That episode is the 1971 album, Where I'm Coming From. 
Where I'm Coming From, released in April 1971, just before Stevie's 21st birthday, was supposed to be Stevie's big coming out party as a serious grown-up musician. With the impending expiration of his initial contract with Motown upon his 21st birthday, Stevie had obtained leverage over Motown that he had previously lacked. And because of this leverage, he was allowed to make any kind of album that he wanted. All of the songs were written in collaboration with Cyrita Wright, Stevie's wife at the time. And Stevie produced the album entirely by himself. The subject matter of the songs often dips into the well of social commentary, touching on war, racism, and poverty, among other things, even as he also includes some songs intended for wider airplay. casual fan of Stevie, you may now be wondering, why haven't I heard of this album before? One reason is that, in my opinion, the album isn't very good. I think it sounds much more like what Stevie thought an album made by a grown-up was supposed to sound like than an album he actually wanted to make. Yeah, it has moments. Yeah. The main reason you haven't heard of it, though, is that another album came out a month later, crafted under similar circumstances and with similar intent, that completely wiped the floor with this album. Picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see release of What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, Where I'm Coming From was essentially rendered superfluous. And while the album does have a small number of prominent defenders, I tend to fall on the side of the contemporary Rolling Stone review of the album, which includes the following, quote, already one of the most inventive, expressive singers performing today, Stevie apparently wanted an opportunity to loosen up outside the confines of the typical Motown single, but he blew it. Not only are the lyrics sadly undistinguished, but much of the production and arrangement is unusually self-indulgent and cluttered with effects that too often obscure the utter virtuosity of Wonder's singing. That's pretty fair. Yeah, it is. A year later, after turning 21 and signing a new contract with Motown that guaranteed Stevie both artistic freedom and a more reasonable share of the profits that his music brought in, Stevie released Music of My Mind an album that not only redeemed the relative failure of where I'm coming from, but also firmly established a clear artistic identity that fits Stevie's strengths. I love, I love, I love, I love every little thing about you, baby. new artistic approach, as I see it, was primarily defined by five features. First, 
a willingness to blur musical boundaries. This meant a blurring between white, red pop music, and black, red funk and soul music, but also a blurring of musical structure unlike the formulas imposed on him by professional songwriters. Second, extensive use of synthesizers, essentially creating a replacement for the elaborate backing bands typical of Motown. Third, extensive vocal overdubbing, with his backing vocals often used for percussive effect. Fourth, a generally optimistic lyrical outlook, heavily influenced by his Baptist upbringing, focused mostly on his own thoughts and feelings and only on societal ills when he really had something to say. And fifth, one of the greatest instincts for melody from any pop musician of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. Music of My Mind was a critical success, recognized as his final step towards becoming a matured artist. But it was a modest commercial success as far as Stevie Wonder went, peaking at number six on the R&B chart and number 21 on the pop chart. However, his second album of 1972, Talking Book, was a success in every possible way. In addition to reaching number one on the R&B chart and number three on the pop chart, Stevie won multiple Grammys. Best Male R&B Vocal Performance and Best R&B Song for Superstition, and Best Male Pop Vocal Performance for the opening You Are the Sunshine of My Life. producers Robert Margaleff and Malcolm Cecil, both of whom had come aboard on Music of My Mind, the Stevie Wonder that we know and love had now fully arrived. All of this finally brings us to Intervisions. As we will discuss, this album contains much of what Stevie had already established as tremendous strengths. Driving funk rockers, lush and moving pop ballads, and perfect pop hooks that worm their way into your brain and never make their way out. But the album is more than that. It has a clear and overt social conscience. And more than that, Stevie shows an ability to integrate this social conscience seamlessly into his other strengths to a degree that was simply beyond his grasp just two years earlier. The end result was an absolute smash, both in the short term and long term. It reached only number four on the pop chart, but it reached number one on the R&B chart and Cashbox chart. Cashbox. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) and won multiple Grammys, including Album of the Year. It's one of the best and most important albums I've ever heard, and I can't wait to talk about it. We seem to be hitting a theme here at Discord and Rhyme in these last couple episodes with musicians who made a lot of progress in very short order, because our previous episode was on Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique, which is similarly a group that made enormous strides in a very short period of time, albeit in a different way than what Stevie did here. Mm-hmm. And just a couple episodes before that, we did Stand Up by Jethro Tull, which is similar. Yeah, I was thinking that too. All right, let's move on to the album. We're going to start with the first track, Too High. Thank you. 
wingspan flail around like a muppet. <laughs> and John. I'm too high, too high, but ain't touch the sky. She's a girl in a dream She's a four-eyed cartoon monster on a TV screen She takes another puff and says it's a crazy scene That red is green She's a tangerine I'm too high As much as I love Intervisions, it's the only instance I can think of where an album that I consider truly great also begins with what I consider that album's weakest song. This is not to say that I consider Too High a bad song or anything less than a solidly good one. Rather, this speaks to the aggregate quality of Inner Visions and how, on an album with several songs that I consider practically flawless, a song with anything to nitpick about it is going to slide down the rankings quite a bit. I've never really loved the grumbly Moog riff that serves as the basis of the song, which I consider pretty lumbering. And I've also never really loved the falsetto doot-doot-do backing vocals synced with the electric piano. On the other hand, the drumming is funky as hell. The layering of keyboards is what you'd typically expect from Prime Stevie, and the harmonica solo is emotionally ambiguous in a way that fits the song perfectly. So there's plenty to love. As is often the case on this album, all of the instruments on this song are played by Stevie himself. In this case, additional backing vocals are provided by Lonnie Groves, Tasha Thomas, and Jim Gilstrap, but the instruments are all Stevie. While the music of this track is at least a touch underwhelming to me, the lyrics are startling, in that they make clear from the beginning that this album is going to tackle social issues in a way that he'd largely avoided in the previous two albums. As one might guess from the title, this is a song about drug use, focusing on a girl who gets hooked on drugs initially finding them fun and interesting, before realizing that her life is falling apart and eventually dying. There's a degree to which Stevie's lyrics here take on the didactic tone of an anti-drug PSA, a la Reefer Madness, and thus I have trouble taking them especially seriously. But at least they don't sound like a self-parody like much of the Where I'm Coming From material sounded. And I appreciate Stevie taking advantage of his cultural position to try and make a positive difference in the world. I think what makes this a great song is great sequencing, because this would get buried as kind of an oddity later on the album, but it jumps right out uh, as track one and catches your attention. And it, That's fair. I, I, this is probably the best spot for it. Well, I distinctly remember when I listened to it the first time, I remember it instantly shattering whatever expectations I'd previously had about Stevie Wonder. I, I had no idea that he made songs like this. I also want to talk about the revolutionary production work by Robert Margolith and Malcolm Cecil, who John mentioned earlier. Um, and that sort of like warbly bed of synthesizer sound that you hear throughout Intervisions, like it's easy to take for granted now when you can just like create any sound you want, but that had never been done before. And just like we talked about with the Beastie Boys in the last episode, they didn't have Pro Tools. Um, in fact, in 1973, <laughs> what they had was Tonto, and that's Tonto in all caps. Producer Mike, what can you tell us about the Tonto synthesizer? <laughs> It's not a synthesizer, Rich. It's a synthesizer system. Tonto stands for the original New Tambral Orchestra and was invented in the early 70s by Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margolef, who set out to create an electronic instrument 
that was not only polyphonic, but multi-timbral, meaning the performer could play both multiple notes and multiple sounds all at once. It was built out of several different synthesizers made by Moog, ARP, Oberheim, EMS, and so forth, all connected together and housed in six-foot-tall wooden cabinets arranged in a 20-foot-wide semicircle for the performer to sit inside. In addition to the albums of Stevie Wonder, Tonto can be heard on albums by the Isley Brothers, the Doobie Brothers, Gil Scott Heron, Weather Report, Joan Baez, and Cecil and Margalef's own albums as Tonto's Expanding Headband, one of the better band names of the early 70s. Thanks again, Producer Mike. <laughs> I feel like Tonto would be the centerpiece of Producer Mike's version of Pee-wee's Playhouse. Phil, what do you think of Too High? The thing that jumps out about it right away is that it's a huge change of pace from the opening to the previous two Stevie Wonder albums. Music of My Mind started with Love Having You Around, which is just a big, joyous song. And Talking Book opened with You Are the Sunshine of My Life, which is a quiet, peaceful, and friendly song. Whereas this one gets right into social commentary right away, with lyrics about a girl dying of a drug overdose, presumably. Some mildly dissonant vocal lines and a pretty depressing vibe. This may have some of the trappings of being funky, but you sure can't dance to it. That said, while I respect Stevie changing things up here, much like John, I've always thought this was the weakest track on the album, which we're grading on the inner visions curve, so it's still quite good. But I agree with most of what John said. The lyrics are extremely heavy-handed, and they're occasionally kind of silly. I always chuckle at the random she's a tangerine lyric in there. <laughs> it rhymed. And the song just isn't as musically strong as the songs that would come afterwards. It actually kind of made me take a little bit longer getting into this album than some of the other Stevie Wonder albums from this era, because those all start with songs that I just absolutely adore. Whereas this one, it starts off pretty okay. <laughs> and it kind of made Inner Visions a little bit harder for me to crack than the surrounding Stevie Wonder albums. Huh. That's funny. This is my favorite of any of these openers, and that includes You Are the Sunshine of My Life. That, that's interesting. You're wrong. Go away, Rich. No, come back. <laughs> Aww, I've been fired from this episode. <laughs> I think Too High is a great record, but as a song, yeah, it's not as amazing as his other stuff, and I can sort of see why John trashed it as viciously as he did. The band interplay is, is great. It's loose and funky and understated, and, and there's incredible synergy between the players who are all Stevie Wonder. Yeah. That is just incredible. It's hard to fathom. The drumming is tight and funky and inventive, and it still never draws attention to himself, but when you pay attention to it, it's just incredible. And you have these dueling harmonica solos. Does anybody else do that? I mean, was that a thing before, or at least was it a thing done by one person? Yeah, it's Stevie um, Wonder dueling with himself. Yeah, there's even angry harmonica, and I didn't know harmonica could be angry because it's usually so happy when, when he plays it. I don't know, um, it sounds pretty pissed off in those Blues Traveler songs. <laughs> That's, I mean, look where it is. It, <laughs> I'd be pissed off too. I don't know what drug he's talking about. I mean, as Phil said, it's a little silly. He's describing a drug that's psychedelic and makes you see things, but also kills you. So maybe it was LSD laced with heroin. But it's it's still there's a line about taking a puff, which makes me think it's about marijuana, which makes it a little reefer madnessy. Yeah. Get out of here, Dewey. You don't want this shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's not a brilliant song, but I think it's a great record and a great album opener. Well, I also really, really love the drumming on this. And you said in the songs in the Key of Life episode that he's an amazing drummer in general. But uh, I read a little bit more on this. Like I read like a really good 1973 interview with Rolling Stone where he said like he just picked up drums from just being around Benny Benjamin at Motown. Uh, just just listening to him play, just like it's the best training ever. And like Benjamin had died by that point already. He died in 1969. And in interviews, like Stevie would always talk about how great he was and how nobody knew about the Motown backing musicians, uh, the Funk Brothers. And he was like spreading the gospel at that point even. Wow. Yeah, uh, I think that's really cool. And for more on the Funk Brothers, check out our series of Motown episodes and the documentary Standing in the Shadows of Motown. We've talked a lot about Motown and a lot about Stevie Wonder. <laughs> And the book it's based on, which is also Standing in the Shadows of Motown by Alan Slutsky. So let's move on to the second track. It's called Visions. Ah, this one's so good. Mm -hmm. Seriously. I never even caught this bass line until now. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. This has been one of my very favorite songs by him, and it's very nearly my favorite song on the whole album. Stevie is only playing a Fender Rhodes electric piano, and the supporting musicians this time are Malcolm Cecil on upright bass, Dean Parks on acoustic guitar, and David T. Walker on electric guitar. Lyrically, this is as deeply personal as Stevie ever got. By this point, he had written many songs that explored his inner thoughts and feelings, but this was the first time that Stevie really confronted the major elephant in the room. We here at Discord and Rhyme love a good conspiracy theory as much as anybody, but all jokes aside, and goodness knows I like to make them, Stevie is blind and has been nearly since birth. I know. In tackling this core aspect of his life, one that had always nominally been part of his core appeal, but that seemed almost banal to mention because he'd overcome it so fully, Stevie shows the heart and pen of a poet to a degree that he really hadn't to this point in his career. In the chorus, he presents the idea that, yes, he might be blind, but he isn't stupid. He can't perceive green and brown in the same way that somebody with sight can perceive them, but he knows that they exist. And more than that, he knows that they have meaning, marking as they do the changing of the seasons and the inevitable passage of time. In the verses, he presents another equally moving idea, the notion that not being able to see the way most people see means that he can only envision a utopia, and that the world would be a better place if only people focused less on what they saw with their eyes and focused more on this vision that they should have in their minds. Musically, it's as gorgeous and atmospheric as he ever got, and the brief pause between the second iteration of the chorus and the second iteration of the third verse 
is close to my favorite moment in his whole career. I'm not one who make the leaves. I know the leaves are green. They only change the brown when autumn comes around. I know just what I say. Today's not yesterday. But what I'd like to know Is could a place like this exist so beautiful? For me, this is where this album really starts earning its classic status. This song is just absolutely beautiful. The lyrics are wonderful, and the minimal instrumentation is the perfect accompaniment to Stevie's voice. The instrumental break in this song is stunningly great. The song is so quiet that it can slip right by you if you're not paying attention to it, but there's some truly wonderful jazz-influenced playing there. If you have this album, next time you listen to it, listen to the guitar interplay and the instrumental break. It's just sublime. It's also an interesting change of pace in terms of mood, because while Too High was angry and straightforward, this song just seems crushingly sad. It's seemingly about wishing for utopia, but knowing it's impossible. While the song is written from a fairly universal perspective, it's really hard not to hear it as being about the struggle for racial equality. When you hear lyrics like, The law was never passed, but somehow all men feel they're truly free at last. Whether intentional or not, I don't know what's in Stevie Wonder's mind, so I don't know if he intended it, but that definitely evokes Martin Luther King Jr. for a lot of people. I think it's intentional. It would have to be. And uh, given the state of the world these days, realizing that we're seemingly just as far away from achieving this vision as we were in 1973 is horrifically sad. Yeah, so on that subject, for this and the next song, I, I, I want to note that we're recording this on Sunday, May 31st, at the end of a really upsetting weekend of civil unrest in the United States rooted in our nation's deep racial disparities. And for me, listening to Intervisions on repeat, it's been really hard not to reflect on how little has changed since 1973. Uh, but I also want to acknowledge our fundamental limitations as a, pa- as a panel of four white people. And as always on this show, we aim to approach the subject from a place of compassion and empathy. But yeah, for me, this song does bring to mind Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I have to admit that credit for this for me goes to my wife, who went to school in the South, where you get taught about Dr. King in great detail, as opposed to the liberal San Francisco Bay Area where you don't. Oh. Yeah, but Stevie's point is that it doesn't matter whether he's blind. Like, this is a shared vision. In fact, he's even... I've even heard him refer to his blindness as a gift. He said in that same Rolling Stone interview, which, by the way, I'll link in the show notes. It's a really, really great interview. Uh, So I quote... Being blind, you don't judge books by their covers. You go through things that are relatively insignificant, and you pick out things that are more important. As for the song musically, I I only really remember that my first listen to the first few songs on Intervisions, and so I after Too High, I actually didn't really know what to make of this the first time. Like we we talked about how great the drumming is on Too High. Well, this one doesn't have any drums at all. That was so weird to me. But it's it's obviously one of the best songs on the album. It slid by me for a while because I was just kind of playing it in the background. This song really grabbed me when I actively listened to it, and I just sat there doing nothing but listening to this song, and that's when it hit me. You know, holy hell, this is great. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the lack of drums loses me a little bit. I just I've just come to expect a beat from Stevie and I'm suddenly flailing a little bit when it's not there and it, it can be hard for me to, to totally pay attention to this, but I'll go with what Phil Where's said. Where's the beat? <laughs> says Ben. Where'd the groove go? I'll go with what Phil said in that when you finally just sit and pay attention to it and it it is mesmerizing and, and I just caught the bass line this time around after 20 years of listening um, and it's beautiful. I like that he's entertaining us with one hand tied behind his back here because guitars aren't Stevie Wonder's thing and he really likes doing everything himself but he put together a song where he can't do that and he had to trust other people to execute his vision uh that must have required a lot of strength and patience uh, but the outcome was worth it and when bringing up the lack of drums that leads me to the question of samples so the songs on inner visions have been sampled a lot a lot hmm. and i'm not going to go into the weeds with that because it would just devour the episode and we just did the paul's boutique one uh but even a song like visions that just kind of floats in the air has been sampled a ton so i assembled a really short reel of that so this is john legend and mary j blige This is Ginny Wine. This is Ether. This is B flat. And that was Rochelle Jordan. So yeah, if you look around whosampled.com, you can just get lost in the intervision section for just a while in and of itself. It's really cool. All right. Let's move on to track number three, Living for the City. And I think he's referring there to Boise, Idaho. Ooh, that deep line there. A boy's born in hot Mississippi, surrounded by four walls that ain't so pretty. His parents give him love. To keep him strong, moving in the right direction, living just enough, just enough for the city. His father works some days for 14 hours, and you can bet he barely makes a dollar. His mother goes to scrub the floors for me. I don't think I ever listened on headphones before because I'm hearing all this stuff, just the, the scratch in his voice. He doesn't normally sing like that, but it's raspy. The four albums before are songs in the key of life just because of the production. They're great headphones albums. I once saw this track described as the 20th century African-American experience expressed in song. And it's hard to think of a more succinctly accurate description than that. From the opening moments, it becomes clear that this is a track filled with urgency and importance. The rising and falling keyboard line in the beginning over a Moog bass is absolutely incredible giving an immediate sense of epic grandeur on par with any of my favorite prog rock songs. And what follows lives up to it in every way. Stevie tells the story of a young man from Mississippi, 
born into poverty, but also into a family that works hard, takes pride in how they present themselves to the world, and loves him very much. As a child, he holds in his mind the idea of the city as an escape from the poverty and seeming misery of his life. And when he becomes an adult, he finally acts upon his dream to travel to New York and start a new life there. Alas, it goes poorly. Wow. New York, just like I pictured it. Skyscraper and everything. Hey, hey, brother. Hey, come here, Slick. Hey, huh? you, look, you look hip, man. Hey, you want to make yourself five bucks, man? Yeah, brother. Hey, look here. Run this car speed for me right quick, okay? Run this car speed for me. Hey. What? Huh? I don't know. What? I'm just going to walk the street. Take your mouth. Oh, no. What'd I do? As portrayed in a shockingly elaborate skit for 1973, the song's protagonist gets off the bus to New York City, almost immediately gets arrested for unwittingly aiding in a drug transaction when he just wanted to make $5, gets sentenced to 10 years in prison, and is released into a world that neither wants him nor cares for him. He's homeless, his health is terrible, and there's nothing he can do to improve his situation because nobody will even consider giving him a job. I have to admit that initially, I considered this skit and its ensuing lyrical consequences way too on the nose and completely lacking in subtlety. But eventually I realized the extent to which this conclusion was shaped by first hearing this song in the early 21st century, decades after release. When I try to imagine how jaw-dropping this must have sounded in 1973, coming from somebody as mainstream and cuddly and universally beloved as Stevie Wonder was at that point, I can absolutely understand why this resonated so strongly then and continues to resonate almost 50 years later. Also, have I mentioned yet that this entire track is Stevie Wonder? I mean, <laughs> like so many. The skit in the middle had a lot of help from his fellow producers and engineers, and he had some help with the synthesizer programming. But this monstrous, epic, seven minute, 21 second, world destroying funk groove is entirely built from Stevie singing, both lead and background, Stevie playing keyboards, and Stevie drumming. This song's existence is almost preposterous. The idea that one person could be primarily responsible for its construction is basically a glitch in the matrix. Phil, what do you make of it? I feel somewhat at a loss here. What am I supposed to even say about Living for the City? Truly one of the best pop songs ever written. It's a truly heartbreaking song that sadly is just as relevant now as it was 47 years ago. It's also truly fantastic musically. That nagging keyboard line is one of the catchiest things ever set to tape, and the song's use of synthesizers has rarely been matched. The use of synthesizers on this whole album is masterful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for a song that goes on for seven and a half minutes, it never feels overly long. It earns every second of its runtime. It's one of those just essential popular music songs that everyone should hear. Stevie isn't prog. We can agree on that much, right? I mean... We're not going in that direction. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. 
Okay. Well, contusion is prog from from songs in the key of life. That's true. Okay, he dipped his toe into it. It is a great song. I mean, I echo everything that John said. It, it's so impressive how it builds in intensity as it goes on. Uh, Stevie does break out what I call his Fat Albert voice at one point, uh, which isn't my favorite yep. thing that he does. But it makes sense. He's expressing indignation at the circumstances of the song's protagonist, and we all cope with things in our own way. So he's allowed to do that. His cab is long. His feet are hard and breathing. Stevie's growly voice. Uh, you don't really get it anywhere else. Uh, but but since this is this was my first Stevie Wonder, it was one of the first timbres of his voice I ever heard, <laughs> and it jumped out at me. It, it kind of reminds me of Paul McCartney's big deep voice from Jet, which is like <laughs> cartoony but gets the point across really well. I love the bridge melody where he goes da 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 and so on. It, it's a long melody. It's it's longer than most melodies you hear, and it's impressively complex. What impresses me about that that drama in the middle is that it never impedes the momentum of the song, even though the beat cuts out towards the middle of it. But somehow it has a rhythm of its own. It moves along, it hits hard, and it doesn't overstay its welcome. And then the beat comes back. And there's never a moment of, oh, it's the skit. He loses me here. Why don't they get back to the music? It's all kind of part of the same groove. I can't relate to most of what the protagonist went through in New York City, though I did get a parking ticket the first day I lived there. But I understand the part where it ages you, just uh, the way he describes the guy at the end of the song. The city can make you hard and gritty before your time. I arrived in Manhattan at age 25, and I left 10 years later as a stressed out 50-year-old. So that part definitely rings true for me. Well, to build out the continuing social resonance of the song to connect then to today, in our Motown episodes, I talked a little bit about the Detroit riots of 1967 or uprising or rebellion, as they're also known. And I just want to bring that up because this was very recent history that Stevie had witnessed directly and it was fresh in his mind. And well, not to point out the obvious, but look around us right now. So, but to put us back in the seventies, this, uh, I just want to contextualize this a little bit because this song is basically about the great migration, uh, which is where a, a mass movement where millions of African-Americans move from the South to cities in the West and North from 1916 to the early seventies. And there's a great book called the warmth of other sons about this. It's really, really, really good. So in releasing a song like this, the way I see it, Stevie is countering the message of say, like a big, big hit movie, like in the heat of the night where racism only happens in the South. And even then, all Sidney Poitier has to do is make friends with the racist sheriff, who it turns out is a big old teddy bear. (laughs) Uh, But here, Stevie is saying, nope, this is happening in the North, in cosmopolitan, liberal New York City. It's about Northern systemic racism, which I... Which is a pretty big statement at the time, especially for... uh, Especially considering, like, how many white audiences heard this album. And also, I love the big synth builds that you guys mentioned. They give the impression of, like, big, ominous, artificial sort of skyscrapers. Like, the city feels like the enemy in this song. Uh, He's not having a hot time somewhere in the city like the Love and Spoonful. He's living for the city. There's so much weight in that preposition. And also, Inner Visions was huge, and pretty much all of these songs became instant standards. So I'm going to play a sort of good, the bad, and the ugly of Living for the City covers. Uh, So the good is Ray Charles, who covered the song in 1975 for his LP, Renaissance. Oh, 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 o
Ugly are both Toto, who covered this song in 2002. <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. They are the wrong person for this. Yeah. This is on par with the Celine Dion cover where she needs <laughs> about being the nappy headed little boy. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Duran Duran covering Public Enemies 911 as a joke, except they have the at least mild excuse of being British. <laughs> but that's all I got for Living for the City. In that case, let's move on to the next track, Golden Lady. point in the album, the material has been super strong, but it's also been super intense. And somebody who had bought this at the time could have been forgiven for struggling with it on first listen if their main impetus for purchasing it had been how much they had liked Stevie on the preceding album, Talking Book. After a dark funk rocker about a drug overdose, a melancholy meditation on what it really means to be blind, and a seven-minute funk epic on the roots of black urban poverty. This album desperately needs an uplifting pop ballad right now, and Stevie happily obliges. Lyrically, there's no attempt at a world-changing message here. I do like some of the lyrics, especially the pre-chorus stanza, a touch of rain and sunshine made the flower grow into a lovely smile that's blooming, and it's so clear to me that you're a dream come true, there's no way that I'll be losing. But the lyrics of this song don't matter in the same way that lyrics matter on many of the other songs on this album. What does matter is that this is one of Stevie's very best uplifting anthemic pop ballads, on par with anything from Talking Book. Previously, the gold standard for Stevie's uplifting anthemic pop ballads. Gold standard? Yep. Hmm. Additional contributions are made by Clarence Bell on Hammond Organ, Ralph Hammer on Acoustic Guitar, and Larry Latimer in a show-stealing appearance on Congas. But everything else, 
from drums and Moog bass to various keyboards to vocals, is handled by Stevie. The one part of the song that absolutely deserves particular mention is the coda. Stevie keeps singing the chorus, golden lady, golden lady, I'd like to go there in endless fashion. But he keeps it from becoming monotonous by bumping up the key a half step every other repetition of the phrase. If he had just done this once or twice, I might have found it excessive and tacky. But by doing it over and over, he imbues the coda with a sense of flight, a sense of ascending into the heavens. And it's absolutely spectacular. There's a Beyonce song, Love on Top, that does this as well. In fact, I, I love that kind of key change, like sort of ascending into space as the song mm. fades out. It almost feels like a gag. Um, and actually, I have a clip here. It reminds me of a great Maya Rudolph bit from Michael Bolton's big sexy Valentine's Day special on Netflix. Let's give it a key change, baby. So high <laughs> to pop with a key change, baby. goes on from there mm-hmm. and it just keeps ascending into like chipmunk levels mm-hmm. but so i'm gonna dive into synesthesia corner for a second because stevie wonder is a synesthete uh he sees oh. music as color and uh, that's all the detail that i've been able to find because research on synesthesia in general is super vague and scattered but it's already really interesting to me to me that despite being blind his brain produces some equivalent of color that he's able to draw on artistically Be- because personally like Uh, My synesthesia is very faint, very mind's eye, like kind of the images you picture in a daydream. Uh, And while I love having sight, I also can't help but think about the musical pictures that Stevie can see with like, you know, no stupid visual stimuli getting in the way. So um, and also I don't play an instrument and have a very, very rudimentary knowledge of music theory. So like, uh, you know, what little shapes I see are pretty are, are pretty simple and I can only imagine like the sonic pictures that are going on in the mind of a freaking musical genius like Stevie hmm. as for golden lady itself to quote Stevie again in that Rolling Stone interview um, I have an idea of what colors are I associate them with the ideas that have been told to me about those certain colors I get a certain feeling in my head when a person when a person says red or blue green black white yellow orange purple purple is a crazy color to me end quote and uh, so what's amazing to me is that Stevie like He really does understand color as a concept and how to work it into a metaphor. This doesn't sound like an outsider's perspective on color. Like, there's nothing lost in translation, so to speak, in Golden Lady. Uh, It's just him pulling off a perfect metaphor. Yeah, this is another astounding song from Stevie Wonder. Going on what Phil said before, um, I, I never want to take for granted what amazing work Stevie does with synthesizers on this album and his other 70s albums. Because I normally do not like synthesizers. If you ever want me to share secrets, uh, just play a saxophone solo on a keyboard. I'll talk about anything. But in Stevie's hands, the synthesizers are, are pretty and tasteful and organic. They add to the song. They sound just right. The coda to the song, which John talked about, goes on for a while. And 
it could go on for another five minutes and I'd be fine with it. It's such a fun song to get lost in. It's such a big change of pace from the previous three. And like John said, it's definitely appreciated here. It doesn't get discussed as much as the more socially conscious stuff on this album. Usually when I hear people talk about inner visions, they talk about how a lot of the songs are Stevie's big social statements. But this one feels more like something that would have been on Talking Book, which is definitely not a bad thing because that's a great album and this is a great song. I think this is possibly one of the best examples you can find of Stevie Wonder's ability to write a gorgeous, complex melody and somehow make it seem completely effortless. Mm -hmm. The melody of this song is not trivial. It's a really interesting melody, but it never sounds show-offy. It just sounds beautifully natural, and very few people have the ability to write something like that, and Stevie Wonder is one of the very few. Also, Ben, I think after five minutes of key changes, Stevie would ascend above frequencies that humans can hear, though I still wouldn't put that past him. <laughs> Stevie's album that only dogs can hear. <laughs> All right, well, let's go on to the next song, Higher Ground. What am I doing? I don't dance, and yet I'm doing it. getting around it, so we may as well confront it right away. Higher Ground sounds an awful lot like Superstition from Talking Book. Predecessor, Higher Ground is a funk rock song built around the combination of a clavinet and a Moog bass. And if somebody really, really wanted to look for a nitpick with Inner Visions, they could probably find it in Stevie's decision to make one of the album's centerpieces a close rewrite of one of his most beloved songs that he had released just a year earlier. If I absolutely had to pick one of these two songs to keep, if I could only keep one, it would almost certainly be superstition. And that matters at least a little bit. Then again, if I don't like higher ground as much as I like superstition, then I still like it about 90 or 95% as much. And it's still absolutely amazing. The lyrical focus this time around is on reincarnation. The idea of people struggling through difficult lives in a difficult world and repeatedly receiving additional chances to do even better as the world continues to decay until they reach an optimal spiritual state where there's no more suffering and pain. Given Stevie's background and his lifelong devotion to his Baptist faith, 
It might be a surprise to hear him so fully embrace a spiritual philosophy more in line with Buddhism and Eastern religious traditions. But Stevie was very open to the idea that his spiritual upbringing didn't necessarily contain the entirety of relevant truth, and I admire his open-mindedness. I also admire his ability to express these ideas in such a simultaneously memorable, funky, and kick-ass musical setting. I like Yes's Tales from Topographic Oceans much more than most people do, but there's something to be said about expressing concepts like this in a four-minute track rather than in four 20-minute tracks. Where does reason stop killing just take over? Does a lamb cry out before we shoot to death? I knew Tales from Topographic Oceans yeah. was going to come up eventually. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> One last thing. Legend speaks of a terrible cover of this song by a group of mostly naked California 'er ne'er-do-wells in the late 1980s. And I'm sure that this is the point where Rich or Phil will choose to insert this monstrosity into the episode to torture me and our listeners. No, we don't need to play that song. Ben already gave the last word on the Chili Peppers in our first episode on MTV's Nevermind the Mainstream Volume (laughs) 1. But you know who else covered it? Michael McDonald. Oh my god. The thing is, there are a lot of Intervisions covers, but it's really, really tough to do a better job than Stevie, so it's more fun to focus on the really bad covers. (laughs) Got it. I just want to be clear that I do not recognize that clip as belonging to the Discord and Rhyme canon. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad. So Stevie Wonder's an interesting guy, but one thing I'll never understand is how back in 1973, when he received access to a time machine and traveled to the late 80s, (laughs) rather than do anything useful with the time, he just swiped a decent song from some mediocre California funk band. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there was probably some better stuff that he could have accomplished, but at least he improved on the Chili Peppers original. (laughs) While theirs is pretty straightforward, loud, and annoying, Stevie's take is far more nuanced, clearly an improvement on the original. You know, really, though, jokes aside, this is the first unabashedly feel-good, funky song on this album, and it's extremely welcome. The pacing on this album is superb. At this point in the album, after three heavy doses of social commentary and then a poppy ballad, some great upbeat funk definitely hits the spot. Yeah, this is an incredible groove. Stevie is straightforward and aggressive on drums. The whole song is catchy and hard-hitting. Lyrically, it's simple, but it makes its point indelibly. And I like how John said it makes its point in just a couple minutes. Sometimes I'm never I'm not sure how artists know that they've recorded a hit. Like, I don't know how George Martin knew that the Beatles had just recorded their first number one, because how can you tell what's going to make millions of people buy your record? But after Stevie laid this down, he had to know he'd done something, uh, something that would resonate and stick around for a long time. You hear this and it's just obvious. This is a big one. All it's missing is a spoken word monologue, possibly self-referential at the end of the song. But maybe the world just wasn't ready for that yet. Uh, and regarding superstition, it actually never occurred to me until John brought it up that this is similar to it. Though I can definitely see the similarity now that you pointed out. But Same. 
Yeah, to me, the rhythm just rumbles under your feet more and the melody like soars instead of stuttering in place. And, th- and that's not a diss on Superstition. Superstition is one of the best songs of all time. Uh, but the song that feels more like a direct revision of that song is You Haven't Done Nothing from Fulfilling This's first finale, which is even also about Nixon. But I love Higher Ground, regardless of its, you know, now unfortunate connection to the Chili Peppers. (laughs) Okay, we're going to go on to the next song now. Jesus Children of America. Hello, Jesus. Jesus, children. Jesus loves you. Jesus, children. Hello, children. Jesus loves you of America. Are you hearing what he's saying? Are you feeling what you're praying? Are you healing, praying, feeling what you say inside? You'd better tell your story. the opening too high this is the rare case of an intervisions track that i only like rather than love to my ears it's basically an ominous dark mood and groove that never quite congeals into an actual song i tend to hear it as an early in progress version of a track that never reached completion rather than as a finished track and yet even with that qualifier i still enjoy this quite a bit The urgency of the groove and the vocal delivery, which taps into Stevie's religious heritage perhaps more forcefully than anything else on this album, gives the sense that this is a song about something important. But as important as the words feel when I'm not paying attention, I can't get a grip on the message I'm supposed to take away. At first, the song seems like it's going to be about religious hypocrisy. Then there's a verse on transcendental meditation, And then the song seems to turn into a plea to a heroin addict to accept Jesus into his life. It's very disorienting and not necessarily in a good way. If I didn't enjoy Stevie's one-man funk groove so much, this might have fallen to the bottom of the album for me. Still, being a track from Inner Visions, it's good. Because right now Stevie was basically incapable of making anything worse than good. So if I can offer my own personal interpretation of the song, I believe it's about how transcendental meditation can emancipate the man and leave him feeling grand. It's good. Yeah, I was going to say it's certainly a much more meditative song about transcendental meditation than, say, transcendental meditation by the Beach Boys. TM song by the Beach Boys. <laughs> oh man, I gotta go meditate. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is the weakest song on the album, but ranking Intervisions for me is kind of like ranking my favorite nine brands of peanut butter. Like, mm-hmm. even if like number nine is like 365 organic or reduced fat GIF or something, I'm still gonna eat the entire jar in two days. It's Peter Pan. <laughs> what is, what's your favorite nine types of banana? <sighs> <laughs> For the record, number one on peanut on the peanut butter rankings is cream nut from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I really, really like peanut butter. 
I, I think what he's saying in the song is that people should wrap a tourniquet around their arm and inject Jesus into their veins. Uh, that's a metaphor. Um, it is a slightly awkward title, Jesus Children of America, unless there really is a JCA out there. Is that an organization? I go with what John says here. Like, it is a great track. It's a great record. The song is a little half-baked. Uh, but there's just still so much going on. I, I can't tell what genre it is. It's funk, but it's also calm and meditative, at least in the beginning. I, I guess it just doesn't have a genre. And I love the angry, righteous crescendo that Stevie builds up to when he's talking about the junkie. It always takes me by surprise because the song starts off mellow and then it just goes to a place it, like maybe my attention drifts for a sec and then it just yanks me back every time and there are incredible harmonies on here i mean stevie on the whole album did a great job of harmonizing with himself usually contrasting high and low registers at the same time and in this one he sings in so many different pitches and there's even this one little moment of sky high falsetto in the middle that it's easy to miss but it's worth listening for i i can't even explain this but this is probably the song from this album that gets stuck in my head the most frequently. That's catchy. It's very catchy. It's clearly one of the more minor songs on the album. Mm -hmm. But there's something about it that just grabs me. The rhythm and melody of this one just absolutely refuse to leave my head. Well, to name another 1973 album completely at random, this would probably be the best song on Tales from Topographic Oceans by Yes. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. If wildly incongruous in sound. So let's go on to the next song, All in Love is Fair. The Revealing Science of God. This might be the best song on Tales from Top Graphic Oceans. <laughs> <laughs> has much less to do with popular music as it had evolved over the previous 15 years than it does with old jazz ballad standards. Along with Scott Edwards on electric bass, Stevie plays piano, both regular and electric, 
as well as drums. And while the instrumentation here is on the sparse side, the word that best describes the music here is lush, largely due to all of the thick, jazzy 7th and ninth chords the song deploys. Lyrically, the song is full of thoughts that are each individually cliché, yet Stevie manages to combine these clichés in a way that feels surprisingly original. An example is in the second verse. All of fate's a chance, it's either good or bad. I toss my coin to say, in love with me you'd stay. But all in war is so cold, you either win or lose. And all is put away, the losing side I'll play. In terms of sinning, Stevie goes all out. And while I wouldn't necessarily want to hear Stevie sing like this on an entire album, it makes for a great change of pace. This song quickly became a modern jazz ballad standard and a favorite choice from the album for cover versions, including by Barbra Streisand. But Stevie's original version is clearly my favorite. But all is changed with time The future none can see Barbara kind of turns it into a Bond theme. She does. The road you leave behind <laughs> All in love is dead. <laughs> Ahead lies mystery Stevie will return. (laughs) This is the kind of song that it would be so easy in the wrong hands for it to be glop. Yeah. In terms of the kind of music I typically listen to, this kind of big jazz ballad is not usually in my wheelhouse. But the arrangement of this is just very tasteful and, as is standard for this album, excellent. And you are never going to find a better showcase for Stevie Wonder's amazing singing voice. Mm-hmm. It's rare to find anyone who can sing like this, let alone write material like that found on this album and play nearly every instrument. Stevie Wonder is truly a once in a lifetime talent. Yeah, this one's cool. And I like that. Well, so like the Motown sound was already like a big swing away from like Tim Pan Alley being one of the dominant forces on the charts and like i just love that stevie is really reaching back again with the influences here and uh like john said it's a a jazz standard it actually made it into a 70s book of jazz sheet music called the real book uh which is probably much more famous than i'm making it sound because i'm not a jazz person Uh, but you're so used to stevie being funky syncopating like snaking between the notes and going in all sorts of like unexpected directions and it's so satisfying when he stops and you hear him nail a precise stately torch song like this. Yeah. Everything you guys said. I mean, this is, it's simple. We're right. (laughs) It's simple conceptually, but some things don't need to be complex. I just hear it as a beautiful ballad uh, with a beautiful Stevie vocal. This is a small touch, but I like how there are two mics on the drum kit. So you hear, different drums in each speaker and it's just a nice effect oh uh, that's yeah cool. this is a gorgeous song it's just so rare that i'll hear an individual vocal that just knocks me back and makes me say wow but this one pulls it off so we're gonna go on to the next song don't you worry about a thing Uh, 
Chevrolet. is a perfect song. <laughs> yep. This doesn't mean that this is my favorite song on the album, nor does it mean that the songs I'd rate ahead of it are ones that I'd also describe as perfect. This isn't one of the album's most important songs, whether in political or philosophical message, and in no way is it a defining quintessential song of the album, if the album has such a thing. And yet... If I was asked to pick one song from here that I'd, that I'd be most likely to describe as perfect, this would be the one. The penultimate song of the album, Don't You Worry About a Thing, is a hilarious, self-deprecating, endlessly catchy, Latin-influenced, piano-based number inspired by the cheeriest of all life events. Divorce. <laughs> Yay! According to the 2006 book, <laughs> The Sound of Stevie Wonder, Words and Music by James E. Perrone, this song almost certainly had some roots in Stevie's divorce from Cyrita Wright about a year earlier. A divorce that, by all appearances, has to rank among the most amicable splits involving any prominent artistic figure. Cyrita and Stevie remained good friends. She routinely appeared on his albums for the next two decades, and he produced, co-wrote, and helped sing much of the material on her first two solo albums, which I've been told are quite good. In terms of this song, the bulk of it is Stevie singing encouragement to the unnamed woman, presumably a stand-in for Cyrita, to feel free to move on with her life, culminating in my favorite first chorus combination of the song. Everybody needs a change, a chance to check out the new, but you're the only one to see the changes to take yourself through. But don't you worry about a thing, don't you worry about a thing, pretty mama, because I'll be standing in the wings when you check it out. The song's opening skit also needs some special mention because it cracks me up every time. Stevie Wonder awkwardly trying in vain to impress a woman with his foreign language skills, and especially the part where she corrects his pronunciation in a completely unimpressed way, yeah. <laughs> is the funniest moment on an album that very much needs funny moments. <laughs> and the decision to take one of the key phrases from this intro, Toda sta bien chevre, and put it in the backing vocals of the outro was just brilliant. And finally, I don't want to leave out mention of the contributions from Yusuf Roman on Shaker and Shayla Wilkerson on bongos and Latin gourd. It's possible that, played as a straight piano number, this song might have exhausted itself prematurely, but the choice to give this a Latin backing was a perfect one, and they give this song tremendous vitality. Rich, what do you think? Oh, well, so I want to give a shout out on this one to the album podcast Heat Rocks. And I'm not worried about losing listeners because they're already more popular than we are. They're on a major <laughs> network. Uh, but they did an Intervisions episode pretty recently, actually, with author Nelson George, who wrote a whole book about Motown. Uh, and he offered an amazing perspective on this song that I hadn't really considered. Uh, so Stevie at this time actually wasn't living in Detroit. He was splitting his time between Los Angeles and New York. And when you were on the streets of New York in the 70s, salsa was 
everywhere, like blaring from windows, stores, nightclubs. You just always heard it. It was a source of solidarity for the city's immigrant communities. And um, I'll link to a really great photo essay that I found in the show notes. But I like that even the album's really silly pop song has this underlying message of unity and empowerment, like just totally fitting with inner visions. I never knew that about this song. Stevie is happier in the first few seconds of Don't You Worry About a Thing than I think I've ever been in my life. And I mean, all added up. Um, This song is just so happy and so joyful. In terms of happiness and exuberance, it makes Smash Mouth sound like Radiohead. (laughs) And in terms of quality, it makes Radiohead sound like Smash Mouth. The beat of this song is just out of this world. I mean, John touched on the individual elements of it, but just the way it all comes together. And he sings it so amazingly. I don't know how anyone can do that with their voice. I I don't know any other songs like this. Admittedly, I don't know Latin music, so there could be a lot that are along these lines. But in terms of pop and R&B, this stands alone as far as I know. Phil, what do you think? So this has always been a song that, much like John said about Jesus, Children of America, I really like it, but I never quite loved it. It's, it seems like it's a little bit of a come down to me after everything between Visions and All in Love is Fair, which, if that sounds like I'm insulting it, I'm definitely not, because this is on the inner Visions curve, hmm. which means it would be the best song on most albums, but certainly any post-Hotter Than July Stevie Wonder album, it would be the best song on it by a mile. Mm-hmm. Not to be down on it, it's, it's clearly a matter of personal preference. It's clearly an exceptionally great song. But for whatever reason, it just never clicked with me as much as some of the other songs. It's clearly a me problem. <laughs> By the way, have any of you seen the movie Silver Linings Playbook? Yeah, I have not, but I want to. You shouldn't. But, uh, you know, uh. I'm, I'm, I'm a movie crank. I complain way more about movies than I do about music. But anyway, the movie, the first two thirds of it is a pretty moving, insightful look at mental health and relationships. And then the script just suddenly gets bored with that. And the movie ends with a climactic dance competition set to this song, which instantly fixes everything and they don't have to worry about a thing. (laughs) And as far as I can tell, there's no irony to that whatsoever. It sucks. (laughs) I mostly needed to exercise my demons about that movie. Thanks, guys. Rich, movies are awesome. (laughs) All movies are awesome. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to the final track on the album. He's Mistra Know-It-All. And now for all you aspiring intellectuals, here's Mr. Know-It-All. Hello, oh, aspiring. <laughs> Today's thesis is how to cure the hiccups. Now, in order to cure the hiccups, you must first have Excellent. a hiccup. I seem to have mixed up He's Mr. Know-It-All with the Mr. Know-It-All segments from The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. It must be Boris Badenov's fault. <laughs> anyway, here's the real song. Watch me pull the rabbit out of my head. <laughs> well, 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 if it isn't Professor Know-It-All. He's a man with a plan. Got a counterfeit dollar in his hand. that he won't be the last He's Mr. Know-It-All This was very nearly the final song on the final Stevie Wonder album. 
On August 6, 1973, just a few days after the release of Intervisions, Stevie was involved in a terrible accident that involved the car with him as a passenger crashing into a logging truck just outside Durham, North Carolina. Over the next few days, he entered a coma due to a brain contusion, and it really looked for a while like he wouldn't pull through. Eventually, though, he responded to his friend Ira Tucker, shout-seeing higher ground into his ear by tapping his fingers along. And between this and his friends bringing a clavinet to him in the hospital for him to play, it became apparent that he would ultimately pull through all right. This near-death experience had a profound impact on him, and his next album, fulfilling this his first finale, was appropriately subdued and contemplative. I love fulfilling this his first finale, and the album that followed, Songs of the Key of Life, but the thought has crossed my mind more than once that had a couple of things gone wrong, he's Mr. Know-It-All would have made a fascinating capstone to Stevie's career. So who is Mr. Know-It-All, and what is this song all about? Back in a quieter moment of the episode we did on Songs in the Key of Life, Ben remarked that Stevie probably didn't hate anybody. (laughs) It was a lovely point, but it took all of my restraint not to jump in and observe that if mid-70s Stevie Wonder was going to make an exception, that exception would have been Richard Nixon. Oh, he'll pay for this. Don't think he won't pay. At the time of recording, President Nixon had just won re-election by a landslide and a year remained before the ramifications of Watergate flared up in such a way as to force his resignation. But while he was still popular with the nation as a whole, the people and communities who hadn't voted for him despised him with a passion. Among these communities were artists and African Americans, and thus Stevie had little use for him. The funny thing about he's Mr. Know-It-All, though, is that if you didn't know to look for the signs that this is about Nixon, you'd hardly know it was about him or about any particular figure. There are certainly verses to indicate that he's disingenuous and not to be trusted. For instance, he's a man with a plan, got a counterfeit dollar in his hand, or if he shakes on a bet, he's the kind of dude that won't pay his debt. But this is hardly as forceful a message as living for the city or higher ground. This is definitely not direct in the way that Stevie would later show he could be like on You Haven't Done Nothing or Black Man from the next couple of albums. In a way, though, that lack of directness is largely what makes me consider this song so great. For whatever ire Stevie might have felt towards his lyrical inspiration, he ultimately chose to graft his words to one of the most uplifting, life-affirming musical settings of his career, as if to say that even if the world and some of its people were rotten, they weren't going to fundamentally change Stevie and his outlook on his life. This is a song that Stevie simply could not have written in this way two years earlier. He wouldn't have been able to marry lyrics based in one emotional state to music based in a diametrically opposed emotional state in such a seamless way that didn't undermine either. The song, and ultimately the the album, also features an extended coda in which Stevie keeps finding new ways to gently prod Nixon, and in the process essentially creates his own analog of Hey Jude, or You Can't Always Get What You Want. It's a spectacular finish to one of the best albums I know. If we had less of him, don't you know we'd have a better
<laughs> I like this song because Stevie's satire has like a lack of specificity that you can only get away with when you're one of the biggest stars in the world insulting the president. <laughs> like if Paul Revere and the Raiders or Lulu released a song with this title, it might be about like any old know-it-all. But nope, it's Stevie. He's a huge star. There's no question this is about Nixon. Um, I don't know if this moved public opinion at all, but I love it. It's a nice bow on the album. I mean, what happened the next year? <laughs> yeah, it was all because of he's Mr. Know-It-All. <laughs> Phil, what do you think? Yeah, this one's great. It's I was thinking, it's really hard to put exactly into words how I was feeling about this one. I don't know why. I've never been able to really coherently explain why I like this song so much, but it just sounds right. Mm-hmm. Placed at the end of the album, it really has that kind of excellent closing credit sort of feel to it with its extended coda and kind of looping melody it really feels like the kind of track that works on its own and does a very good job of bringing the album to a close and yeah like john said i love how the lyrics are a put down of nixon but the music is just this has got to be like the happiest song on this record Mm -hmm. in terms of just how it sounds this song is just so overwhelmingly friendly and upbeat yeah this is the album sleeper classic uh, to me maybe not the best one but nobody knows it and it's just so good And in an era of synthesizers, uh, which admittedly Stevie was great with, the acoustic piano here is a beautiful touch. I like the slinky groove. It's a complex pop masterpiece with a gospel choir. And except for Willie Weeks on bass, it's all Stevie. That's just incredible. The only gripe I have is that Mr. Know-It-All has a counterfeit dollar in his hand. And do people counterfeit dollar bills? Like, wouldn't that be (laughs) shooting kind of low? Like, our plan is in place. Now we can go out and buy all the cans of soda we want. <laughs> it was an Aqua Teen Hunger Force episode. Well, to go back to Rocky and Bullwinkle, there's an episode about counterfeiting box tops. <laughs> anyway, that that's a quibble. Uh, I love this song. John, can you give us some final thoughts on the album? Sure, I can. Inner Visions may not be a flawless album, but it's pretty close. And it's an album that becomes better with greater familiarity, both with the album itself and with Stevie's career as a whole. Child prodigies often disappoint when they reach maturity, sometimes because they completely flame out, and sometimes because they simply cannot live up to the potential that people imagine they could reach. During his teenage years in the Motown machine, the chance had always been imagined that Stevie could grow up and become one of the best of all of them, but nobody in their wildest dreams could have anticipated the five-album, six-LP stretch that Stevie put together in his prime. A healthy debate can be had as to how these albums should be ranked against each other, but for me, by virtue of how the album entertains without undermining its ability to make a statement, and makes a statement without undermining its ability to entertain... Inner Visions emerges as his best. Yeah, this is an amazing album. It's one of the best albums of the 70s, one of the best albums of all time, one of my favorites. I'm still a songs in the key of life guy. To me, the arrangements on there are fuller and the songs are more varied, but I completely understand why this would be someone's favorite Stevie album. I get why John would give this a rating of the square root of five on his website <laughs> instead of just instead of just a rating of purple. Uh, it is square root of five good. <laughs> Rich, what do you think? 
Well, I love this album, but uh, uh, this has been some pretty heavy listening this week, as I mentioned earlier. I, I feel like Stevie is here in front of me singing about the news on Twitter, you know, because I get my news from Twitter. Um, you know, except <laughs> nobody's walking hand in hand, like you mentioned in Visions, at least without gloves. And, and I realize <laughs> that it's a reflection of my privilege that any of this is just now occurring to me as I sit here recording a podcast. But I love this album because Stevie really captures the full range of human emotion, human experience on inner visions. And there's such an undercurrent of joy to even the saddest and angriest moments. And even though he's not the moody blues, I'm glad we revisited Stevie Wonder anyway. Yeah. So I got the chance <laughs> to gush over how great he is because he's really amazing. Phil, what do you make of the album? Well, I think y'all summed it up pretty well. I was thinking when I was getting ready for this episode, is this Stevie Wonder's best album? And I came to the conclusion, it's probably, question mark, my favorite Stevie Wonder album. But man, that whole stretch from Music of My Mind on through Songs in the Key of Life, I wouldn't argue any of them if you said that you liked it better than this one. So this album's great and just another excellent piece in one of the greatest musical winning streaks that any artist ever had. This is my favorite, no question. And I love wow. the other ones from this period. So, John, if someone wants more Stevie Wonder, where should they go? Well, clearly the next spot is the Woman in Red soundtrack. No, no, <laughs> scratch that. <laughs> uh, rather than mention any of the specific albums, I'm going to actually mention a couple of compilations. Uh, one small scale and one large scale Uh that might be worth having in your collection, even if you have the the most important of his albums. Uh, one of these is called Stevie Wonder's Original Music Aquarium One. I guess there was a second volume intended, but it never happened. Music Aquarium. Uh, this was a compilation issued in the early '80s uh, that captures um, a good variety of his best material from the '70s, plus four terrific singles that he issued in the early 80s these are frontline ribbon in the sky that girl and do i do I, I created a playlist of this of this full compilation on my ipod it's one that i listen to pretty frequently uh the second is a box set that came out in in late 1999 called at the close of a century so the it, it's it's four discs. The first disc uh, does a really good job of summarizing his career through music of my mind. Um, it captures all of the most essential singles and and uh, some of the deeper album tracks as needed. Disc two actually has eight of the nine tracks uh, from Intervisions on it. Uh, so that might not be. <laughs> Where does it leave out? They, they left off uh, Jesus Children of America. That would have been um, my guess. Yeah, yeah. but it has. Uh, a lot of great stuff on it, and it's a good sampler of of his material from his post-prime period as well. It would be hard to argue that many songs that you need to have other than what's on this compilation. So yeah, those will be my recommendations. Even if you have the regular albums, those are good compilations to have. Phil, what would you recommend? Well, everybody's already recommended the five classic Stevie Wonder albums. I don't feel I need to mention those again. I will say there's an album that came out right after that that's generally not considered to be part of his classic period, but is not really much worse. And that's 1980s Hotter Than July. Oh, I thought you were going to yeah. say Secret Life yeah. of Plants. <laughs> uh, yeah, not that one. Uh. It would be so cool if The Secret Life of Plants was good, Yeah, but it's not. Nope. <laughs> but It's okay. But a lot of people just get the five classic Stevie Wonder albums and kind of don't go farther because... 
they say those are the canonical five and they just kind of stop. But Hotter Than July would have been a career highlight for almost anybody else. And it says something about how good Stevie Wonder is that a lot of people kind of write it off. But yeah, don't write that one off. You should definitely listen to songs in the key of life and our masterpiece episode on that masterpiece album. (laughs) Uh, But in terms of Stevie music, you might not have heard of, uh, as John alluded to earlier in 1972 and 1974, Stevie produced two albums for his very recent ex-wife, Cyrita Wright. Uh, He wrote or co-wrote most of the songs with her. He played a lot of the instruments. He joined in on vocals. Uh, Cyrita had a beautiful voice and together the two of them made a lot of classic songs. Um, as just one example, I'm going to pick I'm Going Left from the 1974 album Cyrita. It rocks ferociously. It's political and insightful. And Cyrita sings it with conviction. And I really like her voice. I know I have to pay royalties to Rich every time I use this word, but I'm Going Left is a banger. I knew it was coming. <laughs> just your link to all human beings under 35 aren't i (laughs) as for my recommendations i'm going to second music of my mind which john talked about during the intro because it totally deserves to sit alongside his classic albums but it doesn't really have any hits to help people find it and stevie wonder's early albums are all patchy but if you want a full album's worth of great songs i recommend just stitching together the first sides of for once in my life and signed sealed and delivered into a single album which is just collectively some of the finest early Stevie you're ever going to hear. And going beyond Stevie, I also want to recommend that his fans, if they haven't already, investigate Janelle Monae. Her her albums are a blend of a whole mess of classic 70s and 80s R&B and soul influences, but with plenty of her own artistry and personality on top. And there's a lot of Stevie intertwined throughout the songs. I'm going to play a song called Ghetto Woman from the album The The Electric Lady, where the homage is really obvious. Yeah, she's great. So, thanks for joining us for our discussion of Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Next episode is our 50th episode. Seriously, that is amazing. Uh, We're doing a Steely Dan double shot of Countdown to Ecstasy and Asia. 
And we're happy to be joined again by Libby Cudmore, the biggest Steely Dan fan we're aware of. Yeah, her Twitter avatar is her recreating the cover of Donald Fagan's The Nightfly. <laughs> Roll credits. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Inner Visions and other albums by Stevie Wonder at your local record store. Please support stores directly right now if you can. And also on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've made you a Spotify playlist for this episode that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. Visit John's music review archive at johnmcfarrenmusicreviews.org where Intervisions earns an E on his hexadecimal based system. So I was a little off there. (laughs) It wasn't quite good enough to get an F. (laughs) (laughs) Editing is by Rich and special thanks to producer Mike for production, our theme song and other original music. See you next album and be ever wonderful.